Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, everyone. Just a quick announcement before we start. You know that Crypto Weekend Retreat I've been promoting for a while now? Well, Meltem and Jolik and I are canceling it. You're thinking, what? I've already signed up or I was planning to go and oh my god, she's been promoting it for months now. But yeah, I'm also neck deep in book stuff and have been working weekends and realized I really could use that weekend, especially since I probably will be doing a reporting trip right after uh, that scheduled retreat. So sorry. Pretty much my whole life is the book and the podcast, and it's going to be like that for a little while longer. That said, we have a great show for you today, so enjoy, and I hope you go and do some yoga anyway. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you're not yet signed up for my weekly email newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to sign up. And don't forget that Unchained and Unconfirmed are now on YouTube. You can go there to subscribe and be alerted to all the latest episodes of both podcasts. Crypto.com is the place you can buy crypto at true cost. Earn up to 8% per year on your BTC, ETH, XRP, and more. Install the Crypto.com app now. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Today's guest is Rebecca Reddick, partner at Fisher Boyles. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me, Laura. So there was kind of big news this week on an ongoing saga that a lot of people are watching, which is the SEC versus Kick case. What happened? So this week, Kick filed what's called an answer to the SEC's complaint, um, where they set out not only their responses to what the SEC alleged, but in a sort of unusual move, they also took the opportunity to really lay out their version of the facts and their side of the story. This approach, while pretty unconventional in traditional litigation, isn't really a surprise here because when the SEC originally filed their complaint, Kick said, this isn't the full story and we want to have our chance to get it out there. And so with this answer, they really have tried to do that. And what were the main points of Kick's answers? So I think they had a few different themes. Um, I think that their, their first theme was obviously there was a big distinction between their SAF sale and their TDE, as they called it, or their sale to the public. I think other people have referred to their TDE as an ICO, as everyone was calling them back in 2017 and 2018. Yeah. And TDE stands for token distribution event. For exactly. People who don't know that. Yeah. And the other big theme they really impressed was that the SEC was taking a lot of their statements and other statements, whether it be from their consultants, their board members, other individuals who were 
involved with Kick at the time, they were taking those statements out of context and cherry picking the worst part of the statements and putting them in the complaint to really try to up how um, bad Kick's conduct was. And they took this opportunity to give the full context for those statements and um, really try to put them in context. And they also, I think, in the process, really tried to take the SEC to task. They had said the SEC conducted this very long investigation prior to filing the complaint in federal court against Kick, and that they should have been able to do a better job given how much testimony they had, how many documents they collected. And so this was really a pretty aggressive move on their part. And the SEC uh, practically was goaded into suing Kick because Kick first published their Wells response to them and then set up that crypto uh, defendcrypto.org website and basically just you know, announced that they intended to fight any enforcement action in court. So as you mentioned earlier, they uh, this week did respond pretty much point by point, like literally to every single sentence that um, the SEC uh, had previously written. They they wrote kind of like a rebuttal or, or an answer to everything. Um, I had heard, though, that other lawyers in this space predicted that they would make a different choice. And actually, I heard... Uh, a fan from somebody that you had actually predicted that they would do what they did. So can you describe what other choices they could have made and what it signifies that they decided to answer this and give the full context for everything? Sure. So when a complaint is filed against you, you typically have one of two choices. You can file what's called a motion to dismiss. That's a much lengthier paper and it's a, it's what everyone sort of thinks of as a brief or a memo, a typical, um, you know, memorandum of law. And what you say in a motion to dismiss, if as the defendant, is that the complaint as it's pled does not state a claim under the applicable law. So here, Kit could have filed a motion that said the SEC's allegations in the complaint don't meet the various elements of Section Five. Um, they didn't allege that we um, sold unregistered securities. So what happens in a motion to dismiss process is that Kick would file their motion to dismiss. After a certain period of time, 30 to 60 days, the SEC would file an opposition explaining why they thought their complaint did um, state a claim. And then Kick would have an opportunity to reply. And then after the reply, there'd be a period of time where the court would consider the motion and decide whether the case should go forward or not. And in the period of time after the reply, before the judge filed his opinion on the motion, there may be oral argument from the parties. What That takes a long time. Um, Kick would have filed the motion. There would have been 30, 60 days for the opposition, maybe another 15 to 30 for the reply, and then maybe even six months before the opinion. So we could be a year out from um, the complaint before we even get to really move the case forward. My understanding or my thought and prediction at the time when the complaint was filed is that because Kick said, we don't think the Howey test is the right test and we want to have a new um, regime applied to how we analyze tokens and make some new law, the only real way to do that is to get out of the district court quickly. So the only way you can get out of the district court quickly is to get to trial really fast. So I thought they would file an answer because... They've now filed their answer. They're going to be done with discovery, um, which is where people take depositions. They give 
um, documents over by November 2019 from what's been publicly reported about the discovery cutoff. And so this will move them to trial quickly. And after the trial, somebody will likely what's called appeal. So they'll say, we don't like the either depending whoever loses will appeal is, is the right answer. So either the SEC or kick, if they lose, will likely take the case up to the second circuit to say, whatever the jury's decision was, was wrong. Here's the, the um, legal reasons for it and keep going because the Supreme Court is really the only court in the land that can, quote, make new law. Oh, wow. Okay. So it sounds like strategically what Kick was trying to do and or or is doing is just kind of hasten the process in order to try to get to that point where we can make new law or where they can make new law or this case can that- make new law. Is that... Yep, that's exactly right. Um, the okay. interesting thing about what, so what an answer typically looks like, um, in, in any case in federal court is they do go point by point, paragraph one, paragraph two, paragraph three, and answer the complaint, but they don't tell their story. What they, nor- what, what litigants normally do in filing an answer is say, we admit the first sentence of paragraph one and deny the second sentence of paragraph one. Or we don't have enough information to be able to admit or deny. Um, he, and sometimes people use a motion to dismiss, even if they think they're going to lose or they don't have a good chance of winning, to frame their case for the court and tell their story. Um, and so, and an answer usually doesn't let you tell your story. So what I thought was very, a very strategic and very interesting move here is that Kick and Kick's lawyers used an answer to tell their story as they would with a motion to dismiss, except they still got the benefit of filing an answer and getting to move the case along quickly. Oh, wow. Okay. And so what do you think is the significance of that? Like, does it help them to have done that? Like, is that, I'm assuming they must think that or? Um, so I think they definitely want their story out there. I, I think you know, they said when the SEC filed the complaint, this doesn't tell the whole story. And I think they felt that public opinion turned against, I don't know, but, you know, public opinion sort of turned against their position after the SEC filed its complaint. And I think they wanted to have the opportunity to get a little redemption very early in the case because the SEC is not going to have a chance to respond to an answer. One thing I'll say is they put a lot of information in here and they've now filed it with the court and certified essentially that it's true and correct. So, you know, this can be used throughout the rest of litigation. And that is also, I think, um, you know, something that they really had to give consideration to given how much information they really included in their answer. I think for me, the point that really, really stood out was this um, allegation around the Hail Mary pass where the SEC said that a board member called creating the kin token a Hail Mary pass and then kick showed that actually the board member was saying the exact opposite. The full quote here is, the more I think about it, I think this is a great idea. People call it a Hail Mary, but to me that is a long shot and I really do not think it is a long shot, end quote. So that's basically the opposite of what the SEC claimed. What's your take on how they construed that phrase, Hail Mary, to say the exact opposite of what the board member was saying? So I I have two points. One is that lawyers, whether for the government or for private litigants, always try to take the evidence and have it support their case in some way. So taking the evidence and, and trying to use it to support your 
point is a typical lawyer tactic. The other part that's really interesting is Kick's mindset isn't actually important for the claim that is being um, made here. The SEC has asserted only a Section 5 claim in the Securities Act, which says you sold unregistered securities. And the biggest question there is, was whatever you sold, this instrument, or in the case of Kick, was Kin a security? And that's the only question here. So unlike a traditional fraud claim, what's called a 10B or 10B5 claim, where somebody says, you were saying fraudulent things to get me to buy in, there's no um, state of mind requirement here for Kick to be liable for yeah for Kick to be liable for selling Kin. And so, what's super interesting to me, both within the SEC's complaint and then again in Kick's answer, is everyone is trying to talk about what Kick's state of mind was. No, we weren't really um, financially strapped. That didn't matter. And the SEC said they were financially strapped, so they were really trying to raise money. And that's pretty irrelevant. Um, to whether they actually sold unregistered securities or not. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're going to keep discussing some of the other claims that were made in the uh, answer that Kick published this week. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Crypto.com is the place you can buy crypto at true cost. You can buy over 40 coins at the lowest possible prices with no fees and no markups. At Crypto.com, we grow your crypto for you too. You can earn up to 8% per year on BTC, ETH, XRP, and more when you deposit in any of the one-month, three-month, or flexible terms. Download the Crypto.com app on iOS or Android now. Back to my conversation with Rebecca Reddig. So there's another part that Kick keeps going back to in its response. Um, in their very first answer, they make this distinction between the SAFT portion of their sale, which was to accredited investors, versus the token distribution event. And I was wondering, I mean, we talked about this briefly a little bit earlier, but I was wondering, so is this a legal argument that they're making or a factual argument? And how will this affect the case? Because they, this is something that they seem to rely on a lot in their answer. Right. It is a very big theme for them. Um, I, I, and, I, and I think they're also relying on the fact that they registered the SAFT sale uh, with an exemption. But the question here isn't whether the SAFT itself is a security, right? That's why they, they made the registration because SAFTs are unregistered securities. And if you're selling them to accredited investors, you can file for an exemption under the securities laws to say we don't have to register the offering of the SAFT. But what the SEC's point is, doesn't matter that you registered your SAFT. Kin itself at the time 
was an unregistered security. So it'll be interesting to see how the distinction plays out throughout the rest of um, the case and and whether it actually is important or not to the point that Kin was the unregistered security that had been sold. Yeah, I I feel like another theme that I see throughout the answer is maybe um, almost like a a difference in interpretation or understanding of what kin is between the SEC and kick. And what I mean by that is that there are different points where the SEC's uh, complaint said, uh, or it, it cited instances where kick had talked about um, investors, or um, I guess there was some presentation where uh, compound annual growth was mentioned, not actually in relation to kin, but um which they had to point out in their context, but um, but just as kind of a general statement about crypto assets. And um, as I was reading, it sort of felt like the SEC was saying that any time that Kick mentioned any investment aspect at all, that that shows or proves that it was a secure an unregistered securities offering. Whereas Kick seemed to be saying oh, this is a utility token. And yeah, okay, utility tokens have, you know, multiple facets, one of which is the fact that if the token gets widely adopted, then the price will go up. So how much of that kind of like difference in interpretation or understanding of what the token is um, also affects the the case here? So a lot of it, I think Kick even takes it one step further than saying it's a utility token and says, this is just a digital currency. It's really a means of exchange. And, you know, they gave the example of the sunglass retailer who was accepting Kin for the sales of their sunglasses to say, this is really a digital currency. And I think the distinction between the two is what the entire case hinges on um, because it really goes to the nature of whether this is an investment contract and thus a security under the Howey test. And, you know, regardless of whether Kick is looking to quote unquote make new law, the, the district court is going to have to apply the Howey test to determine what kin really is. And so there's one thing that I was wondering here about uh, the Howey test and, and this kind of difference between making a case on facts versus law. Um, so first of all, actually, can you just distinguish between, you know, what those two legal arguments are? The two legal arguments between whether something's like a digital... trying to, yeah, trying to argue uh, on the law versus on the facts. Oh, so uh, I don't think you can do one or the other. There's a funny lawyer saying that says, if the facts aren't in your favor, argue the law and if the law isn't in your favor, argue the facts. And if neither is in your favor, just pound the table. But any real case has to be won on the facts under the law. Um, and here, they're going to, both sides are going to make their case to say, you know, we've talked about in the crypto space what the Howey test is at infinitum, but it is, you know, there's a multi factor test that someone made an investment of money in a common enterprise. Um, with a reasonable expectation of profits, with such profits to be derived from the efforts of third parties or the efforts of others. And so every, both the SEC and KIC are going to take the best facts they can find um, in the evidence. And the evidence here is 
the documents that were produced, the testimony given, um, and try to really show at trial, both by showing the documents and then by putting witnesses up on the stand in front of a jury and asking questions whether um, Kin is an investment contract under the Howey test. So here it really is a facts and a law question. So that's how we'll get new law, essentially, because I did wonder. So, you know, obviously, because I'm not a lawyer and I had heard different people talking about facts versus law, I was thinking, oh, if they're arguing on the facts, then like, does that limit the scope of any judgment, meaning like, would it only apply, you know, to this one case? And then, but anyway, so it sounds like, even though it is like, you're, you're basically kind of trying to analyze the law through this one case. And then from that, you can make conclusions that would apply to other token sales. That's right. Um, the, the district court opinion or whatever the jury finds isn't necessarily what's called quote unquote legal precedent. You can't take it from the Southern District of New York where the kid case is and bring it to the Northern District of California where there are a number of crypto cases pending, including the Ripple case where the unregistered securities question is up again and say, look, they found the jury found this in the kick case. And so you have to apply the same thing here, but it will have some value to say, look, these tokens, and you could say whether they're the same or different, that would be, you know, a fact argument under the law. Um, it will have some interest for other courts, but the only thing that you have to follow um, is if you're a district court, you have to follow what the Second Circuit says, and you have to follow what the Supreme Court says. So that's what's going to create precedent. I don't know if I think whatever happens in the district court will, quote unquote, make new law. It will certainly be, uh, you know, this it, this hasn't been decided before uh, in front of a jury. So all the way through judgment, there have obviously been motion to dismiss opinions on this. But the new law that I understood Kick wanting to make was to have something totally different than the Howey test apply to digital tokens. And so going forward, like, like, do you think that is likely? And what are you looking for, basically, as this continues to unfold? So I think Kick actually put forward a number of arguments now to show that they at least want to unravel the types of arguments the SEC is going to make. In their answer at one point, you know, they said um, pretty aggressively that the concept of decentralization mattering in a Howey analysis is made up out of whole cloth, that there's really no precedent to do that. And the SEC just decided that decentralization was the test without really having anything um, to back it up. So I think we're going to see a number of different arguments like that, to which, which to your point earlier, will give us guidance as we look at other tokens or other cases to think, you know, is decentralization the test or is something else really the test? All right. Well, I guess we'll see um, how this plays out as things go forward. I know the whole crypto world is watching. Um, so thanks so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to share the episode on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factual Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, and Rich Straffolino. Thanks for listening.